We normally have testimonies uh, about our Christian experience. I hope that our testimonies tonight will be uh, certainly uh, a wonderful opportunity to replace that time, but hear how someone became a Christian. And uh, our message uh, tonight, the focus of the message is actually on the subject of Christian baptism. So we'll be looking into God's word. Uh, and as I said, we'll be singing some hymns later uh, as well. So this is a special service in the life of our church. It's been some time since we've had one. I don't know. We, I know we did not have one through COVID, um, but before that, a couple of years before, we did have a number of folks baptized on the same evening. Uh, of course, anytime someone comes to faith in Christ and desires to be baptized, we want to pursue that uh, immediately. And so when someone expresses that to me, uh, my desire as a pastor is certainly that they would understand and know what baptism is according to the scriptures. And uh, and then we just, um, after that discipleship time, uh, we uh, schedule a service. And of course, we want to see our faith not only spread to those who have never heard and into new homes, we also want to see the faith passed on to the next generation. And I rejoice um, that there's a, in the past, there's been a mixture of that. But tonight, two young ladies who've expressed interest in being um, baptized, um, they have grown up in homes where Christ has been believed upon. And even in this process, their uh, parents have discipled them with regard to baptism and gone through the discipleship. Uh, material and baptism, and I'm just thankful for the opportunity to um, rejoice with them tonight. I want to draw our attention to the subject of Christian baptism and what it is. What is it? What is the New Testament's teaching on the subject? And of course, there's lots of ideas outside of the scripture and what you might say just a popular consciousness of what baptism means. And we really want to avoid uh, taking our understanding of something from what people generally think, and we want to get down to what the Word actually teaches and what it says. Of course, Jesus gave instructions to his disciples to baptize those who come to faith in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 28. And so this is a, an ordinance. It was a command of Christ that was given to the disciples for anyone who would become truly a Christian. And Christian baptism is for those who have come to personal faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. I think Matthew 28 certainly teaches that as Jesus gives that great commission. So baptism is for those who've come to faith in Christ. In other words, it's not just those who live in a Christian nation where many people are Christians. It's not for those who are merely born into a Christian home or have Christian parents. It's not merely for those who just attend a church and it's not merely for those who become members of a church. 
Uh, it's not merely for someone who may keep a set of rules or a code that is contained in Scripture. It's not for those who are in some way rededicating their life to God. Christian baptism, again, is for those who have come to a personal faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Christian, that word Christian, you know, is mentioned in the New Testament. It was used of those who were followers of Christ, little Christs, they were called. It was a pejorative term, wasn't meant to be a compliment, but it became a compliment when people, as they were called Christians, recognize that, yes, that is what I am. I am a follower of Christ. I am seeking to be a little Christ, someone who is like Christ. And so Acts, that term is used in Acts chapter 11 in that way. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch, and Agrippa asked Paul if in a short time he would persuade him to become a Christian, a follower of Christ. And Peter talked about suffering for the name Christian. So it is a term, it's a term used in scripture, but what is a Christian? Baptism is for those who have come to a personal faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Where do we see that? You turn to John chapter 3, the Bible. John chapter 3, it's a familiar passage, perhaps for John 3.16, but the chapter begins with Nicodemus, who's a ruler of the Jews. Let's read through the first few verses here. It says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. So there's being born again being born of the water and the Spirit. That which is born of the Spirit, verse 6. And then again in verse 8, born of the Spirit. What is a Christian? A Christian is a person who is born of the Spirit. Now you can look at this passage and say, but it does say water there. Verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And some have taken this passage and suggested that it is teaching that baptism is necessary for salvation because it's talking about being born of the Spirit, and in the same passage, it's mentioning water. And you can find 
what I would say are good Christian teachers who will acknowledge, at least in their view, that there's an allusion to baptism here, but that it is an allusion to the symbol of baptism as a sign of being born of the Spirit. In other words, the mention of water is not a mention that you must be baptized in order to be saved, but it's an allusion to baptism, which is that outward symbol of the spiritual reality. I think a better way to look at it, this is, in my view, is that Jesus is actually referring to something that was prophesied in the Old Testament of what God was going to do for his people as he was going to bring them to faith. He was going to change them by the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you turn to Ezekiel chapter 36, in the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 36, as God speaks about what he's going to do in the future for his people. And I'll start in verse 24 in Ezekiel 36. He says, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. What is the Lord talking about? He's talking about a change, a spiritual change that's going to take place in the lives of his people. And as he mentions water here, he's obviously not talking about physical water, something that can be touched and poured on someone. That's not how spiritual cleansing takes place. Verse 25 again, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. That kind of cleansing, spiritual cleansing, doesn't come from water. The water is a symbol, and yes, we do get our, wash our hands, our bodies with water, but the water is a symbol of that spiritual cleansing. You can't be cleansed from your idol worship by actual physical water. It's by God doing that cleansing. And in the very same time he mentions that clean water, he mentions in verse 27, my spirit. He says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. If you turn back to John chapter three. So what Jesus is talking about in John chapter three is not any kind of a water cleansing or water necessary for salvation. He is talking about the work of the spirit in a person's life that is described as the new birth or being born again. And that is a work that the Holy Spirit does. Another passage, just to give you a cross-reference for that, is Titus chapter 3, where he says, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. 
And notice the wording there is the washing of regeneration. It's not a water washing. It's a regeneration. It's a change of the person by the power of the spirit. It's a cleansing of their life and a changing them. And they have faith. They put their faith in Christ and they turn from their sins. And that's the work of God in them as they respond in faith to the gospel message. That's the new birth. And Christian baptism is for such a person, someone who has gone through that new birth. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. If you look at Acts chapter 26. Water in the Bible here. Acts chapter 26, and look at verse 16. This is as Paul is describing his conversion, and he's giving some details as to what happened on that day, the road to Damascus, and the Lord, of course, confronted him with brilliant light. Verse 15, Paul says, I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. And here's the key verse. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So what we didn't see in Acts chapter 9 and didn't see in another recounting of Paul's testimony, he says here that Christ actually gave him his commission and gave this detail of what salvation is. And this is quite a description. Notice what he says, verse 18. When Paul is sent to these Gentiles and preaches the message of the gospel to them, he says that this will take place to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. They may turn from their spiritual ignorance and lack of understanding, their inability to see Jesus Christ for who he truly is, and they will be turned from that darkness to light. The light of a glorious gospel, which is found in Jesus Christ. And then, of course, the life of light that follows that. So from spiritual blindness and darkness to light and understanding. But it's more than that. A person who comes to faith in Christ, is believing in Christ, does turn away from that darkness and that ignorance by the work of God as the gospel comes and God's word works and the spirit gives them understanding. Notice as well, it says, and from the dominion of Satan to God. There's actually a kingdom transfer where someone has been serving and following a ruler, maybe unwittingly the ruler of this world, Satan, and they're transferred out of his kingdom and into that kingdom of light, the kingdom of Christ. They've been dominated by the evil one and by the message of the gospel and their faith in the gospel, God's working in their heart. They turn to Jesus Christ and confess him as Lord. They believe 
in Jesus Christ. So they come from being dominated by the evil one to the rule of the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the one who is preeminent in all things, the Lord Jesus Christ. But more than that, Notice it says that they may receive forgiveness of sins. When a person comes to faith in Christ, turns from darkness to light, transferred from one kingdom to another, there's also, as they believe in Christ, forgiveness of their sins. There's a complete forgiveness of all that they've done in the breaking of God's law. God grants graciously forgiveness because Jesus Christ died upon the cross to pay the debt of those sins. He took the wrath of God that we deserved as he died on the cross for sins. But there's more. And this verse is full of truth about our salvation. It says, and not only that they might receive forgiveness of sins, but also an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So sins forgiven, yes. Transfer of kingdom, yes. Darkness to light, yes. And now an inheritance. What do you possess when you come to faith in Christ? Beyond that kingdom transfer, the forgiveness of sins, light and understanding. But now there's eternal life. There's the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. The Spirit comes to indwell. There's the hope of heaven. There are spiritual blessings. In fact, every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus is given to us as we receive salvation more than we really can understand fully. It will take an eternity for us to fully understand. But that inheritance that we have is the possession that we have through Christ of the kingdom along with Christ, even reigning with Christ. Salvation is an amazing thing. But that's not all. Because the Lord continues by saying, among those who have been sanctified by faith in me, they've been set apart, set apart to God, set apart from the world, set apart from sin to God. They now belong to God through faith in Christ. And so you're owned, possessed by God, a person who is truly born again, a true person who has come to faith in Christ and has had all of these things true, that's the person that should be baptized, the person who has turned from darkness to light. Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 10. person is a Christian who's been born again, born from above, born the water and spirit, turned from darkness to light, all those truths there in Acts chapter 26, but a person is a Christian who has confessed Jesus as Lord and believed in their heart that God raised him from the dead. In fact, this verse is viewed by some as an early Christian confession that was made at the time of baptism. The confession that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is curios. 
That's the Greek word for Lord. What's interesting in the New Testament, it's not only the word for master. It can be used that way for a slave who has a master. His master is curios. But I think if you read through the New Testament, you understand that the word Lord is used of God. And sometimes there are Old Testament quotations in the New Testament. And when that Old Testament quotation in the New Testament is given, the Greek word that translates the name Yahweh is kurios. In other words, it's equivalent to master. It's equivalent to that kind of a Lord. It, it, it refers to supreme authority. But in addition to that, the word kurios is the translation of that name, Yahweh. So in the confession of Jesus as Lord, you cannot get away from the fact that not only are you confessing him absolute master, you're also confessing him as God. And so certainly an appropriate confession. There's really no denying Jesus had made claims throughout the Gospels of his identity as the Son of God, even taking that name of God to himself when he said before Abraham was I am. The Jews knew what he was claiming, and that's why they picked up stones to stone him. I heard someone recently saying Jesus really didn't leave the option of him being viewed as a good teacher because he claimed so much more than that. And it's evident that he claimed that, that he accepted that when Thomas came after the resurrection and saw Jesus. Remember what he said when he saw him, my Lord and my God. So a person is a Christian who has confessed Jesus as Lord, believed that he is indeed God in the flesh, Son of God, believed in, as the verse gives testimony here, to his resurrection from the dead, that God raised him from the dead. And of course, that confession with the mouth that belief in the heart accompanied by calling upon the name of the Lord, that's a response of faith as the gospel is proclaimed. So a Christian is someone who's not only recognized that, but actually called out upon the Lord for salvation. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I hope you're a believer tonight uh, to think about what salvation is, is encouraging to you to think about the grace of God, the mercy of God, the goodness of God in giving us salvation. This passage helps us to see the backdrop of our own wickedness and sin. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's what we were. Spiritually dead, a state of separation from God, walking and living in disobedience to God, indulging in our sinful desires under God's wrath as a result, and at that time. What does the next verse say? But God. But God. 
But God came in at that time, and by his grace and according to his mercy, he loved us. Verse 5 says he made us alive together with Christ. Let's read starting in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that at the ages, in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful description of God's working in our lives to bring us to faith and to give us all those spiritual blessings. But verses 8 and 9 give more specifics as to how this salvation comes to us. It says, for by grace, that's God's free favor, you have been saved through faith. That's through the instrument of your faith. You're receiving resting, relying in what God did in Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works. So this really doesn't have to do with our good deeds, because if it did have to do with our good deeds, if our salvation had something to do with our good deeds, we'd have reason to boast. But we don't have any reason to boast, except to boast in God for what he's done for us. Not that good works are unimportant, and I think it's helpful to see this passage with regard to works. Paul says, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. The good works follow. The good works are the way that we live our life, but it's never on the basis of those that we are saved. It's never on the basis of those that we have eternal life. It certainly is a fruit of our faith that we work, but even as we work, even as, as Paul says later in another epistle, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why are we working at all? He says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So when we work, God is doing that work in and through us. So we were dead walking, living, disobedience to God, indulging in our sinful desires under God's wrath as a result. But a person in that condition can come to faith in Christ and have all of the spiritual blessings spoken of in verses 4 and down through verse 7. Now, I've described what a Christian is. That person, having come to faith, Someone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ has called out on his name for salvation, has turned from their sins, should be baptized. That's properly the subject of Christian baptism. It's not for all those other possible reasons. Baptism does not save. It doesn't do anything other than, in one sense, make you wet. But there's more to it, obviously, than that. If you turn to Matthew chapter 28, Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus commanded it. Jesus, after the resurrection, tells his disciples to go to a mountain. They worship him there. Some were doubtful, but they rightfully worshiped him. And lest they have any question, he explained 
what had been given to him and what their responsibility was. Verse 18, it says, and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Make disciples. That means evangelize, tell them the good news, and upon believing the good news, then the rest of the verse, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So you can see, based on Jesus' timing here with regard to when a person is made disciples, what happens next? When a person is made a disciple, they come to faith, what's next? It's baptism. It's the very next thing. And it's following baptism that verse 20 says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So teaching and, and, and taking in Christian doctrine and living according to the teaching of Scripture is next. But the very first thing is baptism. And baptism, if we were to look through the book of Acts, we could see that when a person came to faith, that immediately following that, they were baptized. That's what happened at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 through 41. That's what happened in Samaria when the Samaritan believers, when they heard the gospel being preached, they were baptized. The Ethiopian eunuch is going through the desert, Philip sent there by the Lord is preaching Jesus to him from the from uh, Isaiah. And as this man is hearing the gospel message, he comes to a place and he says to Philip, he says, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Why did he ask that question? He asked that question because he'd come to faith in Christ. He had understood the gospel according to Isaiah about Jesus and he believed, and so he wanted immediately to be baptized. The Gentiles at Cornelius' household were baptized immediately after they believed. Let's turn to Acts chapter 10 and look at that. Starting in verse... 44, Peter has been preaching the gospel. He's been preaching about Jesus. He's been preaching about his death, burial, resurrection, his judgment, the promise of the forgiveness of sins. Verse 43, of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. So... Obviously, we have a transitional time in the life of the early church. The book of Acts is not to take from this passage or the other passages the same exact circumstances. God was giving testimony here to the reality of the Gentile salvation as he poured out the Spirit on them. And then as the, the Jewish believers see it, the argument 
that Peter makes is, why would we refuse them to be baptized? They've received the Spirit like we have. And of course they were. The Ethiopian eunuch, turn if you would to Acts chapter 16. The Ethiopian eunuch is back a couple chapters, but Acts chapter 16. Philippian jailer, as he is thinking that all of his prisoners have escaped and they hadn't after this earthquake. If you know the story, Paul, verse 28, cries out with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself, we're all here. And he called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what's the answer? The answer is not to be baptized. The answer is believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. The reason he says you and your household is that the invitation for salvation was also extended to the household if they also would believe. And look what happens, verse 33. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set before food before them and rejoice greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. They all believed. That's why they were all baptized. So when you look at baptism in the book of Acts, when you look at Jesus' commandment with regard to baptism, this is the first thing that takes place following a person's belief and trust. Why did that man and his family get baptized that night? Because they believed. Now, obviously, This is 2023. There's a lot of wrong teaching about baptism. Bad teaching about baptism. And so we take care to make sure that when someone is going to be baptized, they really do understand that baptism doesn't say we go through the scriptural teaching to make sure someone understands. We certainly want to guard against uh a lack of understanding that would bring a person to the place of being baptized, thinking that that somehow was going to save them or do something for them that it doesn't do. But baptism really is, as you can see, the very first thing. It's You might say it's an initiation, but it's certainly not prior to God's work in the heart. It's also a public identification. Turn back to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. To be baptized is a public identification with the name of Jesus Christ and, of course, the triune God, according to Jesus' instruction in Matthew 28. But as Peter gives instruction to this crowd that had heard the gospel being preached in his message there on the day of Pentecost, it says in verse 37, Now when they heard this, the gospel message, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to him, or said to them rather, verse 38, Repent, and each of you be baptized, notice this, in the name of Jesus Christ. That phrase in the name of Jesus Christ is to identify the person who's being baptized with Jesus Christ. 
So that when a person is baptized, they're now, in a, in a very real sense, they have the name of Jesus Christ with them because they've been baptized in his name. They're associated now with his name. Based on Matthew 28, it's not just Jesus, but it's also the Father and the Holy Spirit. So when you're baptized, you actually take the name of God and you doesn't mean that you become divine or that you become God, but that his name is associated with your life. There's a story about Alexander the Great, who, when a soldier fell asleep on his watch, uh, depending on the circumstances, that soldier could be punished severely. Depending on who he was responsible for, it could even be death. And at a certain point, a soldier who had been caught sleeping came to Alexander the Great's attention. And the man happened to be named Alexander. So he held the name of his leader. And as he was asked if he knew what the penalty was for falling asleep on duty, he did understand. But Alexander the Great, according to the story, was merciful, but he did say, soldier, either change your name or change your conduct. Because that name in Alexander the Great's mind carried with it some kind of character. Now, in a much greater sense, when you take the name of Christ and you are identified with the name of Christ, you're identified with his teaching, with his instruction. And so as you live your life, you represent Christ to other people. People see you and they know that you're a Christian and they think of something about Christ because of you. And for all of us who know Christ, we need to remember that. Not only do we live our life and try to please God, but his name is connected with what we do. And we cannot dishonor his name without doing damage to his reputation, not only our own. Obviously, as I said, Matthew chapter 28, if we're baptized, someone is baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We also represent the Father. We also represent the Spirit. We represent the triune God. So once you're baptized and you bear that name, you can't really just go on living like you were before. And if God has done a work in your heart, you won't be. You can't just do anything you want to do. You need to remember, I represent my Savior. You're a living represented, uh, representative for God. Your life testifies to others of Christ. So baptism is a public identification. It's also a communication to the world. It tells other people that you're now a Christian. Now, you may have become a Christian before, but you're Baptism is a formal proclamation that you are a Christian. You could have told people, you could have told your family, you could have told your friends, you could have sent a note out to people, but according to God's word, the instruction that's given is that baptism is to be that announcement to the world, that you're a follower of Christ, a disciple. I was reading a story about a man who... He had a friend who was witnessing to him, and 
unbeknownst to his friend who had been witnessing to him for some time, he did come to faith in Christ in the privacy of his own room. And he was really looking for a time to tell his friend. His friend was really wanting him to come to Christ. And he was wanting to tell his friend, but he wasn't sure what the right timing was. And so he said, can I come to Bible study? That wasn't really different because he'd come to Bible study before, but he'd not profess Christ. And this man who was who had come to Christ was a Muslim. And so there was very decidedly a different religion prior to him being witnessed to and coming to Christ, believing in Christ in his heart, but still trying to figure out the right time. And so they decide to go to this Bible study. And afterwards, they go to a Chinese buffet and they're sitting there together about to eat. And his friend who'd been witnessing to him says, anybody want to pray? He says, I'll pray. And he said, of all the Christians here, the one who raises his hand and volunteers to pray is a Muslim. For whatever reason, he let him pray. And in, as he ended his prayer, he ended his prayer in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that was the way that he communicated, at least to that group of friends, that he'd come to faith in Christ. In fact, when he finished, his friend was like, What? And I believe it was his wife who said, did you hear what he said? Like they, they started to read, it dawned on them that he'd come to faith in Christ. But that same man who prayed in front of that group of people then had trouble even telling his parents because he felt like if he told his parents that there would be severe disappointment and maybe even persecution. And in some cases, that's... Sometimes what happens, someone comes to faith in Christ, but they they don't obey the Lord and believers' baptism out of fear that there's going to be that persecution. And really, for a person to be saved, it does take the work of God in the heart. A person can truly be saved and not yet baptized and need to come to the point where they receive grace and help from God to come and make that public proclamation. <laughs> I read the story, it was kind of, Interesting way his parents found out. He left his apartment door open. He left his computer on. He left his instant messaging open. And his parents came in not knowing um, anything was going on. And they came in and saw the computer screen and saw the announcement that he was going to be baptized in the near future. That's how they found out. But he did get baptized. And that was the public proclamation. And that really is the appropriate public proclamation. It's really not something else. According to God's word, it is what Peter said here, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. When Peter says for the forgiveness of sins, he's not saying that because you're being baptized that you will receive the forgiveness of sins. It really has to do with their faith and trust. They're turning from sin. God grants them forgiveness of sins. And in all of that together, you might say, as he describes the response to the gospel, he says, when you turn from your sins and you're baptized in Jesus' name, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You might say, well, that seems to confuse baptism and salvation. I think in the New Testament, what we're talking about is something that happens so closely together that people, people saw them as the response of faith. 
In fact, if someone came and was baptized, and in the moment they're being baptized, they're confessing Jesus as Lord, people from the outside would say that's when that person was converted. When in fact, the willingness to say that was what put them in the place of being baptized in the first place. They'd have to submit to that, which means they believed it, but that was their formal confession of it. So tonight, as we have an opportunity to witness a couple of baptisms, we have an opportunity to witness uh, those who have, uh, as I have seen their testimony, uh, come to faith in Christ, but I want everybody to hear their testimony so that we can all witness that. And then following our witnessing their testimonies, then we'll take some time to sing some hymns so they can get ready to get into the uh, baptismal, and then we will baptize them um, at that point. So at this time, I'm going to ask Missy if you'd come, and Kennedy to come up to the front here. And Missy is going to give her testimony first, and then just following that, Kennedy will. And then, as I said, we'll have an opportunity to sing some hymns. So, Missy, here you go. Um, hi. <laughs> so when I was younger, I knew I was a sinner, and I became aware of that. I asked my mom how I could be saved, and she walked me through it. Romans 3.23 says, for all of... Um, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I am a sinner and I'm unable to meet the perfect standard of God. I deserve to go to hell because of my sin. <clears throat> and be eternally separated from God. I know that God sent his son, Jesus, to die for my sins. And, um, and the Bible tells me in John 3.16, For God so loves the world that he gave, gave, gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Ask him to, to forgive me for the sins I've done, and he did because he loves me. But he also promised he would forgive me. Ephesians 1, 7 also says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. I understand that baptism doesn't save me, but it shows other believers that I've asked God to forgive me for my sins. When I'm baptism, when I'm baptized, I want prayer that I will thirst, that I will have a thirst for Christ and have a heart to learn his learn and understand what is being taught to me. I think I was about 10 years old and I was struggling with um, whether or not I was a Christian. <clears throat> I had talked with my parents and they had talked with me about what it means to be a Christian. And what I needed to believe. I heard the story that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for our sins and that I couldn't achieve salvation on my own. I just didn't believe it until God changed my heart. I realized how real and serious my sin was and that the consequence of my sin would be serious if I didn't repent. I knew that Jesus was the answer because he is the only way to salvation. I wanted to be saved from my sin. I wanted to follow Jesus with everything that I had. So I talked with my parents and I prayed that Jesus would save me and forgive me. And my mom and my dad prayed and that's how I came to know Jesus.
thank you for your testimonies. And let's stand together and sing number 488 in the hymnal. All right, we're going to go in the same order of the testimonies. So I'm going to ask Missy if she would come join me here. So thankful to be able to hear Missy's testimony of uh, faith in the Lord Jesus. I am uh, thankful for Missy's uh, persistence in her desire to be baptized. She even wrote me a letter, sent it to my house, and said, I want to be baptized. And uh, I, I, I hope you all know that when a young person is baptized, uh, we do want to be very careful that the person really does understand and know the gospel, know that there has been a change. And insofar as uh, I'm responsible, if uh, I baptize someone, I want them to know and understand. And I know Missy has gone through the discipleship uh, material on baptism with other folks. And uh, just over time, I'm thankful that she has persisted and desire to be baptized and follow the Lord in this way. So Missy, grab my hand and hold your nose here. Based upon your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We do have uh, an opportunity for Brother Mike to baptize Kennedy uh, as we understand the ordinance of baptism in scripture of course it needs to be a believer who baptizes another believer but it's a blessing to see a father and of course a mother who have discipled kennedy and i trust we'll see some others in our church as um, parents invest time and in teaching and instruction and our children come to faith in christ so brother mike Kennedy Robinson, with your professional faith as Jesus Christ is your Savior, I baptize you in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord. Let's take our hymn and I'll sing one last hymn. Turn to number... 439, now I belong to Jesus. Stand with me and do it.
Ken, if you visited with us tonight, we're glad you came and uh, certainly welcome you. Hope you can stay and fellowship with us. And I've asked for the chat and for my close to St. Clair tonight. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we do thank you for your precious blood that has redeemed us. We thank you for your son who shed that blood on the cross for our sins. We thank you that he was buried and he rose again. And Lord, we thank you for the ordinance of baptism. We thank you for Missy and Kennedy's testimonies tonight and their desire to want to follow you and to proclaim, to proclaim you in front of all of us. And we thank you for their testimonies. Thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true and we can read it and believe it and study it and hide it in our hearts. And Lord, we thank you for the ones that are here tonight to witness um, what we saw. Bless them as we go our separate ways this evening. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.